Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline, the United Ireland podcast companion series that talks to great journalists about the stories that matter. On this month's episode, we're joined by Simon Carswell. Now, Simon is the public affairs editor of the Irish Times. We'll get into what that means as a role in a bit. He began his reporting career in national papers, um, primarily in uh, financial journalism, first at the Sunday Business Post and then as finance banking correspondent with the Irish Times in 2007. Uh, He's written two books on banking, Something Rotten uh, on Irish Banking Scandals and Anglo Republic Inside the Bank That Broke Ireland. He became the Irish Times Washington correspondent in 2012, uh, covering Obama's second term and Trump's election, as well as a rake of other really interesting stories stateside, and then came back to Dublin um, uh, and in 2017 and became the public affairs editor, uh, which he kind of describes as this roving role um, with a focus on the gap between politics and state and the public and regulatory issues and all that kind of stuff. A lot of his work has focused on Brexit-related things, uh, like a lot of journalists' work over the past few years. He's covered two UK elections um, when Theresa May uh, lost her majority and and, uh, then the Boris Brexit era. Um, And obviously, like so many um, journalists globally, uh, the focus then became on COVID and on the pandemic. So we're going to talk about his career, as we always do uh, on Byline, and also really kind of looking at what it has been like to be a pandemic era journalist, what covering the pandemic um, was like more broadly than the kind of day to day frantic um, following of stories, which so many were experiencing. So that's how we're how we're going to kind of frame the discussion today. Um, Carswell, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much, Ina. Um Looking over your career, there's a bit of a, a Forrest Gump vibe in um, turning up in particular <laughs> places at particular times. But we'll, we'll go through that in, in, uh, uh, throughout our, our discussion. But we always begin by asking, um, where did you grow up and when did the trade of journalism come calling for you? Uh, I grew up in Limerick and I'd always wanted to be a writer, be a journalist. Um, I'd always had an interest in newspapers in particular. I mean, I'm as a kid growing up, I remember actually in my local estate in Limerick, uh, coming up with my own local newspaper, which I think there's only two copies of, but I just loved the idea of, of um, putting together a paper and gathering news and stories. I think it's primarily driven by an interest in telling stories, actually, rather than, um, you know, newspapers per se. I just loved going out, talking to people. I loved the idea of of telling people's stories. And I think it just grew from there. And then through school, I just had a love of writing. Um, unusually in college, I kind of didn't do any. I didn't like most journalists who are working today. They cut their teeth in, you know, university newspapers. I actually didn't. I did quite a lot in the Drama Society in Trinity College uh, and didn't go near the the student newspapers then, but always had a plan to 
try and get into the media um, and actually leaving college I kind of had a view I wanted to get into television but then just returned to this love of writing that I had and um, managed to get onto the journalism masters in DIT and then from that uh, I wanted to get into newspapers as quickly as possible so I recalled writing to various papers trying to get placements and Damien Kybird and Aileen O'Toole in the Sunday Business Post in the summer of 1999 gave me um, a placement, which I loved. I mean, it was an incredible time. The Business Post, extraordinary journalists working there at the time, Frank Connolly, Emily O'Reilly, really fantastic reporting. Damien Kybert was really maverick in, as an editor and took some kind of, uh, took interesting approaches to stories. But there was a very great, there was a great kind of investigative ethos inside in the Business Post at that time. They were digging around on fascinating stories. A lot of tribunals were happening around that time and there was some very interesting journalism being done. So uh, I kind of arrived there at the right time and by the end of my placement, Aileen O'Toole offered me a job as a reporter in the Business Post and it started from there. Um, Two questions. What was your local estate newspaper called? (laughs) I grew up in an estate called Meadowvale, which is in Raheen, um, which is... Uh, Cork Road area of Limerick City um, and the newspaper was called the Medivale Times. Uh, as I say, I think it was only two editions. So, <laughs> but it kind of, it, I, show, I guess it showed the bug at that stage. And what was your undergrad in Trinity in? I studied history uh, in Trinity, which actually was a very good grounding because uh, it was a lot of source work, material work, uh, trying to figure out records, be it medieval history, which is uh, really good grounding to go off and uh, give you a kind of uh, discipline to questioning test- texts. And actually through all of the history that I did, I ended up focusing on quite a lot of First World War history, managed to get hold of a lot of kind of primary source material that had never seen the light of day. Um, I went to a Jesuit school in Limerick to Crescent. And through that, my interest in uh, chaplains in the First World War, I came across a document, a diary of the longest serving chaplain in the First World War. And that ended up being a really good grounding to understand you know, how you trust texts, how you cross-reference information. You get one piece of information from one document and you have to find various other documents to corroborate what, what's said in that record. So it was a very good grounding for journalism generally. Mm. So in the Business Post 99 to 2004, we're talking, you know, heady, heady Celtic Tigers days. You're saying there was tribunals going on, there, there was an investigative um, bent within the Business Post at the time, uh, then the Sunday Business Post. But what kind of other financial stories were you covering or, or which ones did you find yourself gravitating towards? Well, I, I, I kind of got my grounding in that period. One of the beats I covered was an insolvency beat. That might sound like a dry beat, but that's actually, it was quite interesting because what that would what that was focused on was rows and business disputes and legal disputes. Uh, one side says one thing, the other side says another. So it was a very, it was a good grounding to uh, to my career in journalism because there was a lot of contentious issues. There was a lot of um, conflicting evidence in types of stories that you were working on. And uh, there was a lot of really just interesting business rows and it was a great way to get in to uh, developing that kind of discipline of, you know, checking facts and, you know, reporting on things that were 
um, contentious, controversial. And so it was for me, it was a great way to start off in journalism. And um, it, it was a, it was a really great focus in that period. It's a fascinating kind of time because there was a lot of money washing around Ireland at that time, and a lot of people falling out because of the lot of money that was washing around. So there was a lot of very interesting stories during that period. You were a news editor in the Business Post as well. Like, how did you find that transition from being the person assigning things and calling the shots to previously being the, the, a reporter reporting to a news editor? Yeah, that was a difficult transition. I mean, it was kind of leaping into the deep end a bit because uh, I was only 27 when I took up the role as news editor. So you were coordinating um, and managing a newsroom, including journalists that were much older than me. So that was a challenge in itself in terms of management challenge. Um, I kind of liken the role of news editor to air traffic control and particularly on a Sunday newspaper, our, our heavy flow of copy came in on a Friday where you had to get stories in, be it news features, news stories, and get it across to production all in a very narrow window on a Friday evening running into the early hours of Friday. And then it had a business post at the time at early deadlines on a Saturday, mid-afternoon, early afternoon. So it was a it would be a very stressful period that Friday to Saturday. And um, uh and I, I learned an awful lot, actually, in those three and a half years that I was news editor. Looking back, um, I probably should have spent a bit longer reporting. I, I learned a lot, but it kind of gave me uh, that experience of three and a half years on the news desk kind of showed to me that where I wanted to be was as, was as a writer and as a reporter. And what I loved most about journalism was getting out, meeting contacts, meeting sources, going out, telling stories, meeting people face to face rather than in um, kind of management or administrative role in a newsroom hmm. where you're processing copy in that production cycle. In 2007, then you went to the Times, um, a very significant year, a year that has, you know, I think even at the time it had this sense of precipice about it. You know, this there was a frenetic um, energy everywhere that the, and there was this kind of sense of people holding two truths you know, in their minds simultaneously that this is all a giant lol and a big party and also everything is going to fall apart. Um, what was, when things began to tip or turn in 2008, it must have been a, a sensational time to be um, reporting on on banking, basically. It was an extraordinary time. I mean, it's kind of, you hear some, I've heard, remember someone told me once that in an earthquake, you kind of, you've no sense of where you are and all kind of parameters are thrown out and you really just don't know. You can't really read anything anymore. And I think that's really what that time was. I, I like, like a lot of journalists who do well in their careers, I kind of find myself at a time, a right place, right time uh, as a journalist, because I'd left the business post in the summer of 2007. And while I was news editor in the business post, I wanted to keep writing. So I wrote a book um, with Gillian McMillan about Irish banking scandals purely to kind of keep talking to people and keep my writing skills up and to keep getting out meeting contacts, which I enjoyed. And on the back of that book, which was published in 2006, I had developed a lot of these banking and financial contacts. And on the back of that, um, I got the job as finance correspondent, which is essentially banking correspondent for the Irish Times. And the timing couldn't have been better. I um, started in the Irish Times 
uh, the week of the run on Northern Rock, the UK bank, which was the first run on a, on a bank um, in the UK in more than a century. And that really was the start of, of the crisis, of the financial crisis from the autumn of 2007. And I think what happened in that period was that we really hadn't had a downturn in more than 15 years. I mean, there was a blip in the early noughties with the dot-com boom, but I, I don't think that had a major impact. It, was, it wasn't a wider recession at that time. So when the crash came in 2008, I think it shocked a lot of people. And it was a challenging period as a journalist because um, I had gone, when I started in the Times, I'd gone out in, in the first six months what I had set myself a task was to go meet as many new contacts as I could every week. And I had a lot of um, face-to-face meetings and cups of coffee off record with some very senior people in the world of banking. And then suddenly those people, their judgments were questioned. And I think it was a challenge for them. There was a lot of ego at play. There was a lot of, you know, talking down the economy was a phrase you heard when in fact, you know, people were asking legitimate questions, you know, was, was this a house of cards? Was there so much debt um, in the country that when the credit markets turned and the credit crunch hit and that credit dried up, were we going to be exposed? And the answer to that was yes, we were. And so it left a lot of kind of confident people undermined in a huge way. And you, in many times when you were asking questions about that, even asking questions, there was huge pushback from those people. So it was a lot of pressure through the summer of 2008 and into the autumn of 2008. And then with the guarantee and the capital investments and the bailouts of the banks by the government, that was an extraordinary period that hadn't, something like that hadn't happened before. So you were dealing with people who, this was a kind of once in a lifetime situation and that brought huge pressure and brought huge um, anger in some respects when you're working as a reporter, uh, a lot of angry phone calls, late night phone calls. And by its nature, a lot of information flowed in that was very complicated. It was changing all the time and it would often flow in very late at night. Uh, so there were a lot of late nights in the newsroom, um, but I'm not complaining. It was an incredible time to be a reporter. And you had this, it was this kind of sweet spot as a journalist where I was finding that I was getting information from bankers and getting information from the government. And in the same conversations, the bankers were going in the end saying, what are you hearing from government? And the government was saying, what are you hearing from bankers? So you found yourself in this kind of unusual intersection with this flow of information going back and forth. So it led to getting some extraordinary stories um, and really great access at a time when people were trying to understand a very complex period. Mm. And you wrote Anglo Republic inside the bank that broke Ireland that came out in 2011, I think. Um, you also won Journalist of the Year that year. I think that there's a, a unresolved echo of what happened with the crash manifesting over the past couple of years in the current context around elites, resentment, um, broad narratives of of corruption and 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 division and that kind of stuff. Um and I'm always drawn back to Morgan Kelly's writing around that time where he kind of wrote this very, you know, damning assessment around um, who was running the banks in Ireland. I think he was saying, like, said something that like the ECB never expected the people to be running Irish banks to be or Irish banks to be run by uh I think he said faintly dim-witted former rugby players or something. It was just the most, the shadiest thing imaginable. Given your 
breadth of, you know, senior banking contacts at the time. And obviously writing that book on Anglo, you know, and Anglo has become kind of this weird specter uh, in, in Irish society. What was your assessment of all those senior people? I mean, it's hard to make generalizations on on, on mm. a diverse group, but was that was there just a total flailing going on? Well, I think um, the process of writing the book was very interesting in that I, I would try and speak to everyone as many as I possibly could, obviously within the constraints of time and deadlines and all that. Um, where I found the most interesting conversations was with the bankers who were intellectually honest, if I could put it like that, where they would accept that they made errors and the errors that they made. The bankers that were less willing to be um, to accept some sort of personal culpability, um, those would kind of hide in the crowd, if I could. So if there was a kind of collective responsibility and then an individual um, culpability in what happened. And some bankers would say, yeah, absolutely, we made mistakes but we were in the crowd. So there was, I think, one of the best um, investigative pieces done into the banking crisis was Peter Nyberg, um, the Scandinavian civil servant who came and investigated um, what happened at the banking crisis. And his, his kind of take was, you know, there's this kind of group think and this herding. And I think people were swept up in that. Um, and, you know, you'd have bankers say to you, you know, there was natural pride at stake here. When we saw Anglo making these crazy profits, we wanted it. We wanted some of the, that action. So we followed them. Of course we did. And so in a way you could say well, bankers would do that, wouldn't they? I mean, they're chasing profit, they're answerable to shareholders, they're trying to get their bonuses, all of that. So where who's responsible for managing that? And that lies in the hands of the regulator. And what happened was a huge failure by the financial regulator and the central bank. And then you can go a step further and say, well, who, who's in charge of looking after the regulator? And you can say, well, government, were they watching what was what was being done? Were was the discussion and um, was were, was there enough kind of robust challenging of the regulator in doing enough? And you know you didn't need to be an economist to realise there was huge amounts of debt flowing through the system. There was crazy borrowing going on in a property market, and that was happening because nobody had experienced a downturn in property prices, and there was this kind of false sense of security that we weren't going to experience a downturn. And you saw the pushback against people like Morgan Kelly, who you mentioned, and also Dave McWilliams and some of those other voices who were coming out saying, this is madness and we need to watch what we're, what's, hap what's happening here. So I think that that kind of challenge that you would should have had of the banking sector didn't exist. But you could say, well, a lot, everyone seemed to be swept up in this euphoria of the boom. Um, and you know, I remember one banker saying to me, and I kind of it's a quote that stays with me, he said, you, you'd need to have been a benign dicta dictator in 2004 to have shouted stop and managed to stop um, the juggernaut that was uh, the economy at that time and the property market. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And even if it was stopped in 2004, we may still have had a crisis. It may not have been severe as the one we had. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of currents in play and a lot of uh, factors, moving factors at play that caused the crisis to happen. Um, and there's a lot of blame to be passed around actually over what happened. Mm. You really kind of shifted gear then um, going to the US to become the Washington correspondent. It's a very prestigious gig. Um, it's an exciting one, obviously. But I want to know, like, what happens when you get that job and you go over and you arrive in D.C.? Like, where do you start? 
Um, that's a good question. Uh, I guess where you start, what I did was I kind of tried to contact as many people as I did with the book and everything else I do in journalism. You try and sit down and have cups of coffee with people and try and get out and meet as much, many people as you can. Um, starting in Washington, I was moving to a political role largely, so uh, I needed to meet as many Democrats and Republicans. Being Irish in the US is great. I mean, you get great access. People love Irish people over there. Um, and I definitely used that. I played that in a in a big, big way. Um, so I found out, you know, silly things like you find out all the Irish Americans in the administration. So in the Obama and White House and um, all the Irish Americans that are in Congress and you one by one go and meet them. And so um, I developed relationships with a lot of very senior Democrats um, and senior Republicans um, and tried to work those contacts as best I could. And also um there's a lot of think tanks in Washington and a lot of them are former politicians or uh, former members of the administration, former civil servants. So they can give you great access and great insights too. And then um, also just tried to um, familiarize myself with Irish America, which is largely based in New York. So that was traveling up there and meeting people connected with that community up there. So trying to develop as many contacts, that's the kind of main starting point when you move mm. to a new place. What do you think are people's main misconceptions about being a Washington Washington correspondent? I think people feel that you have great access and, and you do to an extent, but you are way down the pecking order in the White House. And, you know, there's all the the various TV networks, there's the, the newspapers, there's uh, the national newspapers, there's some local newspapers in the White House. And I went into the White House pretty regularly, but I didn't go in there every day because you know, the White House briefing would take place just before lunchtime, which is ahead of my deadline, which was a challenge that if I went in there um, and there was all sorts of security arrangements, practical things like Wi-Fi not being great. So it was difficult to get in there. And often, I think in my time in the White House, I got to ask two or three questions. So it wasn't, you were never kind of gone to first. They, you know, a foreign correspondent in Washington does not have the kind of priority from the point of view of the administration. I was saying that in the run up to St. Patrick's Day, you would get interviews with people. I interviewed um, the, the chief of staff at the time of the White House, uh, Cody Keenan is Irish American. He was Obama's speechwriter. You, you got to know Cody quite well and good access with him. Um, and then good access to members of Congress, the Friends of Ireland, uh, caucus in uh, on Capitol Hill is the, the very influential congressman, very uh, senior and experienced congressman. So you could kind of get in touch with them as well, and um, that was a that was a good way to to uh, to find out what was going on in the administration uh, through those contacts in Capitol Hill. So that was a good way to kind of keep in touch as well. The other thing I suppose about that gig is that you are essentially on call for America uh, with regards to anything that happens. Um, the breadth of stories that you covered uh, in the US is is remarkable. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be big events and and, and, and tragedies and acts of violence, um, various mass shootings. You covered the, the Boston Marathon bombing, but you also were covering the kind of underbelly, I guess, um, of American justice um, at Guantanamo Bay. Can you tell me a little bit about it, of your reporting on the, the 9-11 pretrial hearings? Yeah, in, in the early part of 2013, there was a lot of focus on Guantanamo and the kind of failure to shut the camp that was opened 
um, under the Bush administration. And Obama had made a promise that he would close Guantanamo, but he was challenged to do that because he wasn't he was blocked from moving um, the defendants, like the nine nine eleven plotters who were accused of those attacks. He was blocked from bringing them to the US by by the Republican Congress. And so I went down there at a time when there was huge focus and pressure on, on, on the administration to do something about that. There was also a very significant hunger strike. There was more than 100 detainees on hunger strike down in the prison camp. And so it was a look, it was a chance to look at kind of the, the kind of, um, the challenge of closing that place, but the mess that was down there. And what I saw was just, there was really no prospect of justice being done there. It wasn't even a trial, uh, the five 9-11 plotters uh, accused of the attacks. That, that wasn't even a trial at that stage. It was these ridiculous pre-trial hearings going on where their um, uh, prosecutors and uh, defence lawyers were arguing over the most ridiculous of things. It's kind of turned into this labyrinthine legal process where there were applications made to prevent notepads being brought into uh, meetings between defence lawyers and the detainees because the spiral bound on the on the notepads notebooks could be used as a weapon it was ridiculous stuff that was going on but what i what i thought what was what kind of stayed with me most was every time there was these pre-trial hearings with um family members of those of love of relatives who died in the 9-11 attacks were down there and after very stressful days watching the proceedings you would go for dinner and there's an Irish bar remarkably in Guantanamo and we'd go for dinner at this Irish bar and ended up sitting next to um, these firefighters who were badly injured or uh, these poor people who had lost husbands and fathers in the 9-11 attacks and they were living living it. It was really raw for them. I remember one woman, she uh, she lost her um, husband. He, was a, he worked for a weapons manufacturer in, in the US and she got visibly angry with the fact that there were these military defence lawyers working for, uh, representing the defendants, basically saying, my husband made weapons to protect you when you were fighting. Here you are defending the people who were accused of killing him. And uh, it was very emotional moments. And um, I remained in touch with some of those family members um, uh, since I went down there and uh, kind of, they're still living it really. They're, the fact that there's never doesn't appear to be justice to be done going to be done down there is 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 hard for them and i think it shows the complexities legally of of what's going on down there and the prospect of that ever being closed just seems hard uh, to imagine at this stage because of the legal issues that are surrounding the camp down there oh god it's pretty grim isn't it mm. um you also went to cuba with uh when obama was going over for his first visit there what was that like that was remarkable. I mean, that was the first presidential visit since the early in the 20th century. And it was it was it was a pretty special moment. Um, the Obama administration had opened up to Raul Castro at that stage. Fidel Castro had died a number of years earlier. And um, the Obama administration was trying to open up more to Cuba. And there was changes made that would allow American tourists to visit Cuba. And it was an, it was an extraordinary moment. There was a kind of there was a kind of carnival atmosphere in Havana uh, on that trip, and certainly talk about access as a journalist. There was there was a night uh, where there were drinks for all the kind of traveling media, 
and we were mingling with senior members of the administration. And that uh, of all the kind of of the four years that I was in Washington, that was the most incredible access that I got. I was just chatting with very senior Obama administration people, just having a drink and hearing their their views and what they wanted. Um, and that was something that had been planned for quite some time. There'd been a lot of backroom negotiations between the Obama administration and the Cuba administration to try and open up those new relations. Sadly, um, the arrival of Trump kind of shut that down again. But um, it was a moment in time and you felt it was kind of one of these historic moments during the Obama era where the US was uh, was opening up and that kind of thawing of relations with Cuba was very exciting to witness. Mm. We'll jump to 2016 because I remember um, meeting you in Washington, D.C. We went for, for drinks or something. I was, I was over there doing some audio documentary on Hillary Clinton voters, which obviously proved completely irrelevant and useless. <laughs> but I remember um, when we were going, going to a bar, going for dinner or something, and I was like, okay, you know, tell me everything. Like, what's the gossip? What have you been, what have you been feeling and hearing? And you were just like, Trump is going to win. You know, anybody who thinks otherwise is, you know, living in la la land. And obviously, you know, having uh, not been working in the States for the duration that you had, been I was like really you know you're kind of you're living in this um state of denial but you you just seemed so certain um uh, of that uh, a, a little bit out of the out of the election why why was that why did you feel like you knew that was going to happen I think there was this electricity around Trump's campaign and there was this kind of sense that the Clinton campaign was constantly on the back foot having to explain herself and her past policies of the policies of her husband, who is uh, his previous presidential policies. And you would go to rallies and there was this this fire in kind of people that were at the Trump rallies, you know, there was tailbacks going back for miles. There were tens of thousands of people at the Trump rallies. And I think the 2016 campaign was a lesson to journalists to get out of Washington. You know, they talk about the Beltway bubble around DC and certainly there is a bubble on the coasts where, you know, there are more democratic voters and it's more liberal leaning and you have to get it in and into the heart of America and kind of visit the so-called flyover states to really understand what's going on. Um, and I think the perception of what America is, is driven very much by um, media coverage, which is based on the coasts. And so the more you traveled in the US, you went to places like, Florida, you went to the Rust Belt in particular, which helped uh, Trump win the White House. You saw kind of a hollowed out America, once economic, great economic power in these places, you know, the, you know, dilapidated steel mills and mining towns in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And you got a sense that there was people felt left behind and they were looking for something, anything to try and get back. Um, what they had lost. Now, Trump made a lot of promises, um, and you know he, he welched on those promises ultimately when he when he was president. But I think people at the time in the run up to that 2016 election said, "Well, we've tried everything else. We've tried Democrats. You know, the um, the they, they supported Clinton. They um, supported Republican mainstream Republicans and Bush, and then they supported." The rebel Republicans, you could call them with the Tea Party, that didn't work out either. So they were looking for something and along came Trump and perfectly timed by him, 
And uh, he appealed to them in this kind of sense that, you know, what do you got to lose? He was saying to black voters, I think a lot of white voters in America um, asked themselves that question and answered it by saying, well, we're going to vote for Trump. And also, I think there was a sense that Trump was famous um, as this, he presented himself as this very successful businessman through The Apprentice in the TV program. And to a kind of uneducated or poor American, this sense that there's this rich American, you know, uh, Americans like seeing in their president someone who's had some, perceived to have some success. I won't say he's had success because it's all smoke and mirrors and debt driven, but to, a, to, your, to your average American, they saw this man as being quite wealthy and said, well, maybe he can make me wealthy too. And I think it was kind of as simple as that in asking that question, you know, what are we going to lose? Let's vote for this guy because the other ones haven't worked out particularly well. And Clinton's campaign was kind of, it felt like it was focus grouped so much. It was, um, she was saying the right things and playing to the identity politics that was um, very much there in that campaign whereas Trump was was going more broadly. And then ultimately, I think that things didn't help Clinton, as we as we saw with the, the FBI's investigation of her emails and the timing of some of the announcements by Comey and the FBI director at that time didn't help her campaign, reminded a lot of voters of why they didn't like Clinton in the period up to the election. And I think Trump had that momentum. Now, he won very, very marginally in the end, but it was enough, you know, that 77,000 votes in three states got him into the White House, which shows what a knife edge the US political system rests on. Mm. I think as well, it's a lesson, you know, a journalistic lesson too, that, you know, it's not just about sentiment within, um, I'm trying not to use the word cohort, within groups of voters. It's, it's about the temperature of that sentiment and actually passion, no matter how misguided, can really m- move and, and, and motivate people <clears throat> in a way that can sometimes be hidden. You know, you can kind of have a similar number of voters, let's say, or similar similar number of people going either way on something. But mm. if one group has, like you, you use that term fire, like if there's a if there's a passion there, then the temperature of the sentiments is what tips, th- which what is what can surge things. It's what can give things momentum in that way, I guess, as well. You see, I got, you see, you see that in everywhere. You mean, you even see it in, in Ireland right now too. Absolutely. Like, you know, lesson to all politicians and they understand it is momentum is a huge thing. It's a, it's a huge force in politics and that energy, that um, excitement about something. I mean, two things in particular grabbed me about Trump and what he was doing in that election. One was the breadth of support. I, I went to two places. I went to upstate New York because I kind of thought, all right, I, I need to go to different places to kind of take the temperature of what's happening politically here. And I went to... Um, a rally in Albany, uh, which is the state capital in New York. And I was looking around this packed rally, Trump rally, and I noticed these kind of well-dressed people there. I went up to talk to some of them and I was, it turned out there was these guys who come up from Manhattan and like they were kind of Wall Street types that had retired and they were completely voting for Trump. They basically said like, you know, uh, you know, I know this guy's an idiot. I know there's, I know, you know there's certain things he's saying that are so distasteful and uh, terribly insulting, but uh, you know, this, I think we got to give this guy a chance. Uh, you know, it's kind of a what are we got to lose uh, uh, attitude. And then the other place I went to was in Florida, where you had a lot of kind of retired doctors and professionals who had left 
the north, uh, northeast, and 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 retired in Florida. Um, you know, very well-to-do people living off very significant pensions. They're all voting for Trump as well. And then the other thing that surprised me about Trump was, you know, you'd see all these great, hor- horrific things he was saying, um, insulting thing, insulting kind of uh, reporters with uh, reporter with disability. Uh, some of the things he was saying about women, the Planet Hollywood tape that came out, um, Access Hollywood tape that came out, which you know he said the most horrendous things about women, and yet people kind of forgave him, and in a way, it kind of reinforced why they liked him. It was bizarre. It was like, well, it shows he's not a politician. I, I know people who speak like that. You'd hear people say to you, you know, um, and it was this kind of sense that, well, he's he's like a normal person. He's like a regular person. And maybe that's what we need in politics. So it was extraordinary. Some of these things that he was saying were actually reinforcing people's uh, views as to why they would vote for the guy. And Mm. that's when I kind of thought that mix of that broad support and that kind of, we're not too worried about some of the things he's saying. That to me felt like he has a chance. And then in the, in the two to three weeks before the election, there was absolutely that momentum that was pushing his campaign and it just wasn't there. And in Clinton's campaign, I went to a rally at one point in one of the Midwestern states just before the election and Obama was speaking at it in support of Clinton. And I have to say it was just a little lifeless. And I was surprised at that because Obama is this extraordinary orator. He can get a crowd going and he just didn't have it that day. And it was this gorgeous, sunny day with outdoor rally. And I just thought "Mm, something's happening here, Mm -hmm. you know. You know, are, are people kind of do they see Obama as a bit of a spent force? You know, there's this overpromise, underdelivered view on Obama, which you know even people close to him were kind of concerned that that might happen because of the promise of the 2008 campaign. So I think all of that added uh, to Trump's rise and uh, and that election win in, in November 2016. Mm. It's also kind of that very like weird and sometimes sinister aspect of an individual who basically, you know, like Trump or I suppose you could put Boris in with this or a few other people who, who just seemingly kind of like don't really care what people think. And it's the the rules do not apply then because you can just consistently be terrible or say terrible things, but you won't face con- the same consequences because the expectations are completely different around like seemingly bizarre individuals, you know, so you kind of get away with stuff like the super bold person in the class you know, doesn't face the same disciplinary actions as like the really great nerd who who missteps, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting way of putting it is the bar lower for Trump and Boris, possibly. But also there are parallels with the, the Brexit election, as I call it, in uh, not the referendum, but the, the general election in 2019 with Boris mm. to get Brexit done. That, again, was very kind of one dimensional campaign. It was people were fed up about Brexit. He was had this campaign. I'll get it done. Um, and then he managed to uh, sell that to all these north of England constituencies, broke through the red wall. We visited a few places up there. Bolsover stood out. And it's very similar There's parallels between Bolsover in 2019 and uh, some of the Rust Belt states in 2016 were people saying the same thing, you know, where it's like, what have we got to lose? It's, this guy seems to be promising this kind of elixir with Brexit. Everything's going to come good with it. And uh, my life will get a whole lot better if this happens. Obviously, it wasn't true. It wasn't going to be true. But Barr sold it in a way, much like Trump sold it in a way in 2016. Mm. Well, let's talk about our our 
what I'd like to talk about in terms of our, our, our main focus, because I'm fascinated by by the the period of reporting that has just occurred. <clears throat> so you you came back to um, Dublin in 2017 and you became the public affairs editor. What is that gig? <laughs> it's funny, a, a, a colleague in journalism who had a similar title was saying, what, what, what do you make of that? What do you think that job entails? <laughs> and I was laughing. I was The way I see it is it's kind of between government and politics on one side and the people on the other, or state on one side and the people and the public on the other, and that gap in between. So everything from kind of regulatory issues, from things that are being decided in politics, what does it mean for the public? And when I was given the kind of Brexit remit, what I took that to be was, we have a lot of kind of top-down reporting with Brexit, I thought, the politics of Brexit, be it in London, Brussels, Belfast, Dublin. And I thought, well, we need to go out and talk to people here. So the first uh, few years of doing the job, I went out and spent time with border communities, talked to people along the border um, to see what it meant for them. Uh, in Britain, one of the things that we did was not focus so much on the politicians to go talk to people. And, that, you know, you do a kind of tour of constituencies to try and find out. And, and that, what I found particularly interesting from that exercise was you got a real sense of what way the election was going. By the time you got to London, we ended our, our constituency tour when we got to London. So that kind of focus of on the people gives you a great sense of what things, how things are going to turn out politically. Um, so I think that gap um, needs to be filled by reporters. And if any election showed that that needs to be filled, it was the Trump election. You need to get out and talk to voters everywhere. You need to get out and away from the politicians and hear what people are saying and what the issues are. And so that's kind of the role I see a public affairs role being. But also... Um, I see it as being a bit of a roving role. I kind of came back as a foreign correspondent going, the foreign correspondent role is fascinating because it's kind of this helicopter, big picture view on a lot of topics. In many ways, you have to be a jack of all trades because one day you can be writing about politics, the next day you can be writing about um, a crime. Uh, you know, another day you could be reporting on a colour piece and next day a feature. So you, you have to really be a, be kind of as as, as versatile as you can in your reporting. And I kind of thought something similar with the public affairs role. It was like this kind of foreign correspondent at home as well, digging into kind of issues, be it housing and be it Brexit related. So that, that's kind of the role I took. Um, and with the pandemic, obviously, all, a lot of that went out the window. Um, mm. So let's talk about the outside of that, because it is a, it has been a time where pretty much every journalist has become a pandemic journalist in a way. At the outset of the pandemic, one thing that I was noticing from your reporting was, well, first from all reporting, there was obviously this, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a unique event in many ways in its scale and impact um, and, the, and the hectic, frenetic energy of it all as people were kind of floundering to um, figure out what was going on. Because I suppose, unlike other stories, the facts were hard to discern because the science hadn't caught up with what the actual context was in a way. Um, so that kind of idea of, you know, the early pandemic explainers on particles in your breath and all that kind of stuff um, was, was, was useful, I think, for people around the world. And yet we still knew so little about it. But your reporting seemed to hone in straight away, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm incorrect here, on, on nursing homes and things like that. Um, what was the outset of the pandemic like for you? Um, I mean, I thought there was kind of similarities between 
the public health crisis that was COVID and the financial crisis um, 10 years ago, uh, more than 10 years ago, where, um, you know, it was kind of, there's so many unknowns. There's a whole lot we just didn't know, um, you know, much like we didn't know how the market and uh, financial sector was going to behave or government was going to react uh, back in the financial crisis. We just didn't know how this virus was behaving and what way it was affecting things. So we were kind of feeling in the dark a bit again, this time with COVID. My role was kind of, you know, Paul Cullen, the health editor, would be the kind of first uh, reporter on a lot of the health stories. And then in politically, you had our political team, um, Jack Horgan-Jones, Jennifer Bray, Pat Leahy, uh, and the rest of the team working the kind of political context. So I, I kind of thought there was this, I was watching what was happening. And to me, I kind of, it surprised me early on the first two months of the pandemic that there wasn't more focus on nursing homes. Mm. And if you remember, if you go back to February and March uh, before COVID really took hold in Ireland, we, we were watching what was happening in Italy and particularly in Northern Italy and Lombardy and the hospitals were overrun. And the response to that was by the HSE and others in government to prepare the hospitals for what was coming. But they, they, they missed where the where the wave first wave eventually hit, which were nursing homes, and I think that was a problem that came down to the how um, our care system is set up and how we look after our most vulnerable people, our elderly people, and that there was this sense, well, that's a private sector. We we kind of uh, we outsourced all of that care to private nursing homes, so you know they make money, they make profits, they'll manage. That's that's for them to manage, and I think that was a huge failure on the part of government and the HSE. And Paul Reid has said that the chief executive of the HSE has said that mistakes were made. While the focus was entirely on hospitals as it should have been at that time, there was no focus on nursing homes until it was really too late for a lot of nursing homes. And what I managed to get hold of was, um, you know, correspondence under FOI, for example, as well as just working the phones and trying to hear what was going on in nursing homes. You're hearing just moments of extraordinary desperation over the Easter period where, you know, you had the father of a managing director of a nursing home in County Louth emailing the state medical officer, chief medical officer, Dr. Tony Holohan, um, and emailing Simon Harris, the then health minister, in a cry for help, you know, saying people are dying in here. We don't have the support. We can't get our staff tested. We're down staff to a huge degree because of uh, they're out due to illness or isolation. And that to me, showed that this that we missed um what was where where in, where covid was really impacting those early stages in nursing homes and that was uh, that took up a lot of my focus in the early reporting in march april and may of, of 2020 um how do you feel about that now do you think that we're seeing the outset of uh, a legal case or two um, take hold in terms of people taking cases against nursing homes and so on. Obviously, you can't, can't talk about the thing, things like that, really. But do you think that there is going to be some kind of resolution or accountability or thorough inquiry into that? Or do you think that government just wants to package everything off as like this was an extraordinary time and now we are in 2022 and let's just move on? Well, there is there are commitments there to to hold some kind of inquiry into what happened and to have a look back into what happened. Um, certainly, a lot of the families who lost loved ones in in uh, during the pandemic want 
they feel it doesn't go far enough. And that's why they are resorting to litigation. There are now family members. We have written about it in, in recent days and weeks about the number of uh, cases that are being taken, wrongful death claims that are being taken against nursing homes. I think we will see these see more of these because those families have been looking for answers for two years as to what happened. Mm. I have some sympathy for the nursing home sector because like everyone else, they were dealing with the virus that they didn't really know how it was behaving, how it was transmitting, but there was no doubt about it that they were unprepared. And if you speak to people in the nursing home sector, they would say that they were abandoned by the state, by the government in that early period of the pandemic. They couldn't get access to the PPE that they needed uh, you know, those cries for help that came over that Easter weekend were down to the fact that they couldn't get their staff tested. And if there had been the mass testing that was later rolled out for nursing homes, I think we would have got a greater hold of the problem in the nursing homes. Saying that, there was a more general problem with the availability of testing and uh, the materials needed to test for COVID. So more generally, you know, the world was was struggling to cope with the response to that. What kind of really leaves me kind of unsettled is that, you know, in the first wave in April, May of 2020, there were significant numbers of deaths, um, largely in nursing homes, um, nursing home residents and people aged 65 and over. Yet those deaths were exceeded in the third wave by quite some measure. And that to me says we didn't learn the lessons of what happened in the first wave uh, by by the winter of, of 2021. So I think if there's a reason for an inquiry to be held, it's to answer questions like that. Why did that happen? Why was it allowed to happen? And yes, this is a novel virus. Yes, people were trying to figure out what what way it was what way it was being transmitted. But I think more could have been done to prevent that third wave, and certainly more should have been done. And decisions, government decisions that were made in the winter of 2020 were calamitous and shouldn't have been made based on what we didn't know, even on what we knew, but also what we didn't know and what could happen, particularly in vulnerable settings like nursing homes. Mm. We'll go into a couple of other of, of, of your stories during that time in a second. But I'm just wondering, like, what was the general vibe of actually having to report on this so intensely uh, over that period because the Times was the first newspaper office to close, I think. Um, it was actually one of the first companies to close. Yeah, that's before. right. Yeah, um, We had a case in the office, one of our colleagues um, became infected and uh, the 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 management sent us all home and um, I've actually only been in the newsroom once um, since I think around March 5th or 6th, early certainly early March. And we were sent home and it really, in a strange way, it probably prepared us for what everyone else was going through. We kind of it hit us first. So we had to react and being outside the office as a reporter is not as severe as it is for an editor or, or a um, commission editor or a production uh, staff member. I mean, there's been extraordinary work done inside by the likes of Liam Ryan. Um, production chief and others, Michael Conway and others inside, they've, they've really done incredible work putting out this paper. And, you know, it's an extraordinarily intensive uh, exercise getting out a newspaper and to be able to do it all remotely is pretty incredible. As a reporter being outside, I've been working from a laptop since I moved to the US in 2012. So nothing changed for me really, except the location of where I was sitting with my laptop, which is at home. Um, but one of the things as a reporter that was a challenge was 
we are, you know, our lifeblood is getting out, meeting people, contacting people, uh, having cups of coffee with people and, you know, hearing and hoping to get information from them. And, you know, the throwaway remark from a kind of casual encounter sometimes can lead to some very interesting stories. And the, the pandemic deprived us of those contacts. So it made life difficult. You're relying on phone calls. We always rely on phone calls, but in particular, uh, solely phone calls during the pandemic. So that became a challenge in terms of sourcing information. I'm not on the political team, so I wasn't down around Leinster House. Uh, and there were certainly um, restrictions on the number of people that could get into briefings. Um, I would cover an effort briefings on a pretty regular basis where Paul Cullen couldn't attend. So the likes of myself, Jack Corbin Jones and others would attend those NEFIT briefings. Um, so those were kind of the only direct contacts that we would have um, face-to-face with people during the pandemic, HSE briefings as well, which were held on a weekly basis. So it was a challenge to get information through the usual traditional ways that you would get information. Mm. And one of the other kind of aspects of, of reporting on the pandemic was there was just this bombardment of stories and Certain things were cutting through, um, certain things not so much. It felt at times that there was a swirling kind of attitude in terms of the public's priorities. Often the public was very much um, driving the news agenda in ways, for example, uh, around Golfgate and so on. But other times, um, maybe there was certain apathy towards certain, certain stories. You've obviously reported a lot on uh, things like vaccine queue jumping and things like that. Is it frustrating sometimes when you're reporting on something that you think is really important, but it's not necessarily met with the reaction that you feel like is is weighted to the importance of the story? Yeah, I mean, it was a funny time. The reaction to stories, I think, was kind of amplified by the noise in social media and Twitter. Um and I certainly had to turn down the volume on Twitter during the pandemic. I, I would, I, I couldn't ignore it. You can't ignore it. You have to, you have to track what people are saying and thinking. I think it kind of, it has an outsized influence on discussion, debate, coverage in a way. Um, so that's why it's good to kind of turn down the volume on it at times. Um, yeah, I mean, you get a lot of pushback on stories. Uh, you'd be surprised if, if some stories don't kind of capture the uh, the public attention quite as you thought they would. Um, you get a lot of kind of anger from people where you're just doing straight reporting, you know, from NAFIT briefings and like a, you'd have a weird situation where you'd be in an NAFIT briefing waiting to ask the questions. And usually there was three questions. You could push more, but um, there's enough. There's a lot, quite a lot of journalists there, so you have to kind of share the time, obviously. Uh, but you would get people kind of sending you direct messages or tweeting at you um, or, or tagging you on Twitter. You know, ask, getting, can you ask this question? Can you ask that question? Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of focus on our work and what we were doing and were we asking the right questions. And there's, you kind of got, you got to accept that there were people at home uh, you know, stuck in their housing houses, isolating, and um, you know, people be screaming at their phones, very frustrated. Some of the decisions that are being taken, and yes, I think there were times that the government and NEFIT could have explained some of the decisions that were being taken. You know, people had lost their jobs, there were businesses closed in in the entertainment sector, for example, in hospitality, restaurants, bars. I think the government and NEFIT could have done much better at times explaining why they were closed, why they were not being open and um, kind of walking people through some of the decisions that were made because there wasn't the data there often to explain why those closures were there. And that feeds that anger 
And we see that anger then from people reacting on social media. And so stories that we are covering that are we think are important and are important, you know, be it about vaccines, be it about the behavior of the virus, be it where the settings, the settings where things are being transmitted. And you know, things around the lack of data as well. When we were reporting on those things, you get a lot of pushback from people. Um, you know, it's important to keep reporting. As I say, you can't ignore and you wouldn't ignore what people, how people are reacting, but certainly you have to um, uh, play, it, play it down sometimes and take into account that, you know, some people don't like what you're reporting and don't like certainly things that the people you're reporting on, what they're saying. Mm. Um, what stories do you think were lost in the noise that you still feel deserve attention or further exploration? Like I'm kind of obsessed with all these um, contracts, I guess, or, or or payments that were made around medical equipment and PPE that the HSE made um, that were were useless in in some yeah. cases, you know. And you're kind of just looking like, holy moly! Like, not that I'm accusing anybody who is um, entering into those or or trying to source things of this, but like it's re- a, a crisis like that where loads of things have to be sourced is a real paradise for grifters as well. Um, mm. uh, can be. Uh, what stories do you think have been un- justifi- justifiably forgotten about, I guess, and deserve a revisit? Well, I think the PPE deals need to be looked at. I have some sympathy for the people who are trying to buy as much PPE as they possibly could and were scouring the world. I mean, yeah. I was doing stories in March, April, May of just the complete shortage of PPE. And, you know, I do have some sympathy for, for, for those people in procurement trying to buy products that they thought would work. Yes, there were people that you know, I think a lot of those contracts need to be looked at regardless. You know, you can't just excuse it as we were in wartime. We had to make those decisions. You still need to assess why those decisions were made and you know, look at exactly, well, what systems did you have in place at the time uh, and clearly they were inadequate um, to be able to call on, you know, the emergency uh, supplies of PPE. Liv Radker has said that. He said that would be one of the things that we need to look at in futures. We need to have a kind of peacetime uh, stockpile of PPE to be prepared to respond to pandemics like this. And he's right. Other areas that I think need to be looked at, and you would hate to think that all of these issues that came up in the wartime "Quote unquote," that was the pandemic, and uh, that you would that they wouldn't be they wouldn't kind of drift into the background. For example, the conditions in meat plants, you know, the the the, the, the working conditions that staff have to work to there. I think we need to look again at that and keep an eye on that. And the Health and Safety Authority needs to keep a very watchful eye on the type of work that takes place in those and those settings. I think nursing homes are is absolutely critical area that we need to look at um you know when this pandemic is over hopefully very soon we should look back at you know how do we look after our older population uh our congregated settings like nursing homes the best place for them to live um nursing homes aren't hospitals you know these are social settings are, are uh, should should they be something more than that i don't know should they be kind of quasi hospital or should they have a quasi clinical setting? Do we need to have more own door living for people in those kind of environments so that if there is a pandemic that they can protect themselves and can be protected by having their own home, their own cottage, their own apartment, whatever. 
we need to look completely again at nursing home care and elderly care um, because we have an aging population, which is a reason to be looking at it. And then also we should be looking at it because of how that whole area has been affected um, the most in this pandemic. So those would be areas I think that we need to look at. And also I think we need to look at the decision-making. Um, government made what I thought was dreadful decision in the run-up to Christmas 2020, the so-called meaningful Christmas, the decision to reopen the way they did over that Christmas period. As I said earlier, it resulted in the largest number of deaths in the pandemic in the third wave. That key period from the tensions between government and NEFID in October of 2020 through to that decision being made to reopen the way they did reopen against the advice of NEFID, um, that needs to be looked at again. Government would say that, no, they, they did follow NEFID advice, but that's not correct. They've been spinning that for quite some time. Mm. They took their own course and it was calamitous and um, it resulted in more than 2,000 people dying in January and February of 2021. And we need to look at that period. So if there's an inquiry, needs to assess the decision-making around that and what led to that moment where there was decision-making around that. So those kind of, we shouldn't be moving on quickly. Uh, everyone wants to get on with their lives post-pandemic, but we shouldn't be moving on quickly to the extent that those decisions, those areas that need much further attention, that those, we don't move on from that, that we go back and look at that. Mm. It has been an extraordinarily intense two years for your own um, working life. I mean, besides, you know, having to be on the clock all the time and uh, listening to, you know, plenty of distressing stories, I'm sure, and um, trying to counter the, the, the maelstrom of public discourse, or not counter, but negotiate, I suppose, or exist within um, the maelstrom of of, of very heightened uh, public discourse. And we all understand the reasons uh, why that is. What have the past two years been like for you kind of emotionally trying to do this gig as an all-encompassing story takes over? Well, it's been tough going at times and stressful, but I just say, I mean, I'm in a privileged and lucky position. I work at home. Uh, I'm not in an ICU that's overrun with patients, very critically ill patients with COVID. I'm not an ICU doctor or nurse who all the pressure that they had to live with or the director of nursing at a nursing home that's managing an outbreak or healthcare assistant in a nursing home. So I'm very lucky. Um, my stress is a fraction of what those those people had to go through during the pandemic. Um, it's it's I mean, it's it's been an interesting time as a reporter to be remote. I would say remote reporting and remote journalism isn't great for journalism. <laughs> Generally, I think uh, we need to get out meeting people. And certainly before the current surge in infections, I was out uh, trying to meet people um, for cups of coffee uh, and those kind of contacts that would yield stories and information that would lead to stories. Um, certainly been trying to get out more and, and miss that. So it, that's been tricky um, reporting with those constraints. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, it's it's been it's been manageable. You know, we, we adapt and we move on and we try our best. Um, I had a kind of interesting situation uh, with my family and personal situation that my father got quite sick uh, just, just as COVID was taking hold in the country. So I had this very strange situation where I was kind of living with the stress of, of managing my father's health and uh, with my family trying to manage uh, my very ill father through what was essentially the whole hospital system shutting down in March 2020. 
So I had this strange situation where part of my day was taken up with trying to get the best care for my father and trying to manage what was happening in his health. And at the same time, then going and reporting on some of the things and being informed by my own personal experiences of trying to transfer my father from trying to get my father transferred from a hospital in Limerick to a hospital in Dublin to get the right care for, for his illness. And that was an extraordinary time. And then my father caught COVID in a hospital in Dublin and had to be isolated in a COVID ward in another part of the hospital campus. Um, so we were living through the stresses of um, a COVID diagnosis within our own family while I was reporting generally on it. And as I said, it did inform what I was reporting. I got a much greater understanding of what was happening in the virus um, and kind of living through um, what I was talking to people about. And when I spoke to families who had been affected, it, you know, I, w- I wouldn't mention my own personal or family case, but, it, you know, it was their experiences were marrying my own. Thankfully, my father's COVID infection was was quite mild and he got through it and was able to um, get the care he needed for his cancer diagnosis that he had at that time. But um, I, I was I was talking to doctors uh, around my father's care and they were giving me a, as good, if not a better understanding of what COVID was doing to the hospital system than I was getting from the briefings or the, the, the calls I was making through my job as a reporter talking to people in the health system. Mm -hmm. I think I'm like, that sounds so stressful, but I think it kind of speaks to how all encompassing um, that this era has been that everybody who's been either making decisions in government or in government departments or on NAFIT or the journalists themselves reporting on it, we're also all experiencing the story, you know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, another first draft of it, you know, very, very up close. Um, so I think that's a really, really important point. Yeah. Like, I think that we all have a COVID story, you know, everyone does. Um, and some, some people's COVID stories are far more tragic than others. Um, you know, I, I have a friend who lost his father because he caught COVID when he went out during the so-called meaningful Christmas um, and went out on the basis that he was assured that it was safe and caught COVID and you know, died six, five, six weeks later. So, um, yeah, we, we all do have some sort of COVID experience, be it the effect of isolation from staying at home, the effect of lost income from lockdown. Um, and actually, you know, reporting on the experience of families and the healthcare they received. I mean, my own father's experience, like I saw the most extraordinary work done by medics and nurses um, and it gave me, you know, this, the idea that the pandemic kind of put our, all our priorities in perspective and who is essential. And, you know, I saw firsthand with the people that were caring for my father, who was essential. And, um, you know, there was very kind of moving moments when my father got out of the COVID ward and they do a little procession with the nurses um, and we did a banner and made a big deal of it because he went through such an emotional time. And, you know, my father said something extraordinary. He said, that was the first time I saw those nurses who cared for me for the best part of a month. It's the first time I saw their faces because they were outside. They did the little procession for him and they took their masks off. And these incredible young women who were treating my father um, and doing these obviously invasive tests on a regular basis, which he didn't like, but he saw them. And it was quite an emotional moment. It was extraordinary to think that, you know, direct contact that, 
my father had with these people and yet he had never seen their faces and it goes to show and they got those nurses got emotional as well when they saw my father leaving and I just saw firsthand the incredible work that was done and I hope as I said earlier I hope that we don't forget as we move on go back to normality soon hopefully of the role that those people have played those nurses and you know if at, 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 its, at its best level of paying them more giving them better working conditions that we don't forget the priorities that we figured out were correct during the pandemic, that those priorities remain in place post pandemic uh, Mm. and that we look after the people that need to be looked after who look after us when crisis hits. Mm -hmm. For sure. Before you go, Simon, thank you so much for uh, this, this chat. It's been enlightening and informative um, and interesting. I want to know what subject or story or area are you kind of interested in working on or or just have a little spidey sense that that's something that you'd like to dig into that is perhaps underreported um over the next while well i wouldn't say it's underreported but i think what we need to look at is you know these kind of poly crises that people talk about now and that do we need to be on a war footing um and, you know, the literal war that's going on in Ukraine is an example, is that do we need, and the impact that it's having on um, everyone outside that country, you know, do we need to be more prepared to deal with crises? And also our responses should always be on a crisis level, even when it, even when the crisis isn't as acute as, as it has been or will be. And so, you know, to look at government responses, things that were done in the pandemic, what can we do to deal with problems that we have in our society? For example, housing, you know, prior to the pandemic, we were told all the things that we couldn't do that happened in the pandemic, um, you know, be it freezing and evictions or rent increases. But what should we be doing to cope with the crisis that we live with every day? So homelessness and housing, we're dealing with a crisis in helping Ukrainian people coming here which is incredible. And the, uh, the the public's response has been astonishing. And the state's response now is, you know, housing those Ukrainians who are coming here. And what should we do for our own population as well in terms of managing in, in advance of the next crisis? So bolstering our health system. Um, do we need to think about having to invest much, much more? Does our attitude, much like we're taking in Ukrainians, do we need to actually think about our own lives and how we live and our homes in terms of multi-generational homes now. Do we need to be thinking about caring for our older people within our families much more because nursing home care isn't the best care um, in its current setup? So I think we need to be looking at more of those things. What have we learned from the two years of the pandemic? What are we learning currently from the crisis in Ukraine? And what footing do we need to be on to prepare for the next crisis that's coming, not kind of sit back, rest rest on our laurels, but learn from what's happening. Those would be the areas that, uh, you know, the next couple of years we should be looking at. And much like we should have been doing it post the financial crisis as well, Mm. what happened there that we haven't fixed. And a lot of the problems that we have now in housing, for example, are because the problems weren't fixed post financial crisis. Mm. So if ever there's a reason to look again once we get into so-called peacetime and out of wartime, that we look at what we should be doing to prepare ourselves for the next 
crisis that's coming down the tracks. Mm. Simon Carswell, public affairs editor of the Irish Times slash infinite looping crisis correspondent. (laughs) Correspondent of doom. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat. Thanks very much, Una. 